If they do, just when everything looks so dark. Man, they said we better accent. Should wait the positive. And ain't the negative. Spread joy to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. Now, don't mess with Mr. In Between. Down in the valley. <laughs> do, 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 do. Ha. Didn't know about that one. That's funny. Are you kids? What's up? Remember when it used to be dope? Yeah, I had a pocket full of fame. Look what you're doing now, I know. Well, I know. I lost touch with reality. Now my personality is not commodity. Used to be Mr. Steve Austin on the mic. Six million ways he used to run. Yes, Oscar Goldman got man. So I got loose circuit, so loose. Used the mother goose with the eggs. That seemed to be all in. Ah, do, 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 do. Ah, you know, pack my bags because I'm out of here. My mama don't love me and my mama don't care. Read the papers, the headlines say. Dust up, rapper got soul. Bingo, got another good guy, please. Bingo, sopping all the radio heads for something. New killed the whole fandango in the drug program of all Kangle. Some fish don't bite, don't realize that I'm over like Cobra. Don't need nothing, I need nothing, something. Not a damn, not a damn, I need. Hey folks. Hey folks. How you doing? Just gonna do a nice casual Friday stream here. No Chris, no video gaming. Just me in the chat, which I know isn't always great because not all the questions are that good. But hopefully you guys can surprise me here and give me some good ones. Just hanging out. Thank you for saying the shirt is nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was thinking about that. Uh, I mean, this is obviously very dumb and facile, but uh, all right. You know what? I want to. This is good. Someone says, "What faction would you have been a part of in 1917 Russia?" I would say a quote, maybe 25 to 30 percent of all online left wing politics that isn't connected to 
you know, actual questions of action in the moment, but are fixated on points of sort of doctrinal consistency or purity, boil down to people fantasizing about what they would have been doing in 1917. I'd have been a fucking Bolshevik, man. I'd have been uh, an anarchist, whatever. Uh, the real thing is, the real fact and the thing that everyone should think of before they get into this kind of uh, mind gamery and specifically before they get into the point of investing themselves in these questions having meaning and trying to reinforce their politics through this lens is that you wouldn't have been anyone because you wouldn't have been there. There is no you. There is no person that is you that is outside of the context of your life. If you were a Russian in 1917, you would not be you in any way. It is a meaningless question. And it's one of the things that makes it very difficult to talk about history because people want to make it into a story that they can put themselves into. But it assumes that there is a thing, there is an essence to an individual that transcends their time and place and their context. There isn't. Like what makes you is the sum total of your experiences with the world. And the experiences of the world are are determined temporally and spatially. So you would not have been there. You would not have been in 1917. You would have been, it wouldn't have been you. And people really get riled up about affirming like one or another political positions related to these questions because they want to have imagined themselves on the right side. But you're looking through a glass darkly at an entirely foreign world, not just in terms of language, but just a, a, a vote, an entire world. I mean, Russia specifically, my God, in 1917 was a feudal work, a, a feudal order that had the that had modernity just dropped on its fucking lap. Ugh. That had things like Marxism, things like socialism, sort of transubstantiated into like uh, emotionally invested sort of transcendental spiritual categories uh, as like the old order died right then. Like the old, it was like a, it was like a, a, a phase shift away from like uh, a traditional understanding of the world into a modern one. Whereas in the rest of Europe and in the United States, that transition was much slower because development happened more evenly. And so you could not, and, and being an American, by God, being an American at the end of the 20, 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, when you are the most alienated, uprooted people who have ever existed on earth, the most, the most ironized, you can't put yourself in that world because they saw the world differently. They, they, their world was a different world. And I understand why people want to put themselves there because it was a time when 
actions felt like they mattered. I mean, and I especially get the fixation around the Bolsheviks because we live now in a world where it seems like there's no hope for anything ever getting better. And more, and the big reason for that is because there seems to be no place for human agency. There's nowhere for an individual to put their fucking shoulder and move anything. Everything feels completely stuck because there are so many of us. We are so diffused. There's, and, and I think more than anything, our, uh, our, subject, our subjectivity, our, our, literally our being subjects of capitalism is enforced at such a diffuse level of technology, social technology specifically, not just actual physical technology, that there's nowhere, there's no winter palace to storm. And so 1917, where you have a small coterie of dedicated uh, leather jacket clad badasses who amongst this giant throng of people all running around with chickens with their heads cut off in the middle of this long form crisis, this, this death of one order, uh, the only people who are like Lenin, the only people who are, who are able to see the thread for where it is and direct action, it's incredibly intoxicating. And that's why people want to imagine themselves in that position because it is so much more preferable than being in our position. And I think that there's a, there is a unspoken fantasy that if you can visual, if you can uh, present yourself, if you can orient yourself around what you imagine that position was then that you will be able to translate that clarity of action to the current moment. And I'm afraid that's impossible. Because because uh, the circumstances are different, there was no middle order in the, in uh, the the dying Russian Empire. There was a mass of fucking peasants, a disproportionately large uh, urban proletariat in the few places of significant urban development, a almost non-existent middle class layer, and then the Romanov family and like the fucking. Uh, general staff just sitting on top of it and like the police bureaucracy. We are literally all of us middle subjects, no matter what our uh, conditions of employment are, our relationship to capital, we have been, uh, we've been bourgeoisified in America by the process of like being the place where the entire world's uh, economy is funneled, has been uh, organized around and funneled through for the past 70 years. And that means that the, that that the uh, that the pressure points and the mobilization elements just aren't there because, like, if you want to look at the difference between Russia and Germany in 1917 and 1918, one of the big ones is is that the middle class had been bourgeoisified in Germany. That there was a big chunk of workers not just party functionaries and union leaders, but also actual rank-and-file workers who had been invested enough in capitalism that they didn't want to see some terrifying uh, revolution that they didn't know what the outcome would be of. There was no, and so that middle class, that bourgeoisification, uh, it, uh, it broke, it split the working class and defeated, defeated the kind of uh, focal point action that, that the Russians were able to do because they were pushing against a rotten open door. This, it's a, it was completely, the, there was nothing there. There was a, a few inbreds at the top 
some army officers, and then amass a military that was mostly fucking conscripted peasants. It was a situation where, where focus, pressure, and commitment, and a, frankly, a religious faith in the project could have an effect. And so people want to, want to imagine that for the moment. But the moment is different. The time is different. We are different people in every meaningful sense of that. We are different people. And so we couldn't, we're not them and they couldn't be us. That's why, uh, that's why I find the, like defending the Bolsheviks and defending the Soviet Union to be a pretty uh, meaningless endeavor. It, it really does seem to exist. I mean, I know people have rationalizations for why they think it's important because, you know, we're fighting against propaganda war and all this stuff, but most people aren't paying attention to any of this stuff. What we're really doing is, uh, is validating ourselves, validating our uh, our purity and our imagined position in a historical continuum of action. That means that we would have been Bolsheviks uh, in 1917 because we're defending them now. See, I love this. Online leftists are obsessed with 1917, spends proselytizing about 1917. I'm not... This is a meta commentary, for Christ's sake. I'm not defending one or the other sides. I'm saying the whole point is about uh, its ego. It's not, it's not a political project. I will say that I think that the Bolsheviks were correct, that they were the only ones who, who could have seized power, that there was no transition to, uh, to de a democratic, uh, a bourgeois democratic government because the bourgeois did not exist. Uh, but after the Civil War and the, basically the destruction of the Russian working class in the Civil War, uh, I don't know, they, they probably should have, and, and more importantly, the failure of the fucking European, pan-European revolution to happen should have made them s probably stop and consider what they, uh, what they really needed to do. Uh, but they couldn't because they, at that point, were were committed and had separated themselves. But like people fixate on Lenin because he was the guy who saw every angle. And he was, he was, he was unencumbered by the sort of neurotic fixation on doctrinal purity and, uh, and correctness that paralyzed a lot of other people. Uh, and that was because he was fully committed to, uh, victory for its own sake, which when you're in a country like Russia only makes sense if you have assumed like he did the Trotskyite view that, uh, that there would be a, a, that it would be a spark to a revolution that would resolve all the contradictions inherent in trying to govern a giant medieval peasant society from the top. Uh, and then it didn't happen and he died and they had no, and they had, they didn't know what to do. But it's difficult to imagine any situation where the Russian peasantry doesn't get just ground into fucking hamburger by the 20th century.
because that's what happened to the peasantry everywhere. Uh, if you were not turned into peasants in the least violent means, although still violent in Western Europe where capitalism starts developing, when capitalism shows up, peasant societies are annihilated. And that, more than anything, is due to the nature of interstate competition. I mean, that's why the, the Russian state decided to inf basically enforce capitalism on Russia in the 19th century, even though most of the people at the top levels of Russian society had no real investment or interest in it because they were in a state competitive framework. And state competitive frameworks are what made capitalism in the first place. There is nowhere else in the world that had the number of small and medium-sized states in close competition with one another than Europe. And once the state system sort of spreads and solidifies, uh, everybody is going to destroy their peasantry if they want to not get taken over. And then if you get taken over, your peasantry is then destroyed by your colonial overlord. Oh, the thing I was going to say before I saw that question is, because I have the Suez Canal simulator thing here, um, it would be funny and like kind of over the, on the nose if capitalist, if the world capitalist system was destroyed by a blockage in an artery, considering that that's the number one way that capitalism kills the people who benefit from it. Like literally we're having a world heart attack. You got to get a stent in there or something. Or else she'll keel over like Nelson Rockefeller while having sex with his mistress. But yeah, no, it's not going to collapse anything, of course. Yeah, there's money to be made is the thing. What's the difference between a peasant and a yeoman farmer? The, the thing about a yeoman is that he owns the land he works on, which traditionally in, in, uh, in peasant societies is not the case. The, the landlords are local power brokers who have domination of the land, and then work, peasants work on the land in some sort of uh, uh, tribute mechanism that varies from world from system to system. Yeoman is a farmer who owns their own property and works it for themselves, which is a thing that, I mean, I really do believe that is the foundational distinction between America's notion of uh, democracy and liberty and, and why we don't have, a, we never had a socialist party in this country and we never had a serious socialist vision is because notions of liberty in 
places where uh, land that have a tradition of of peasant agriculture have a social conception of liberty because it's because impo- uh, social relations were embedded and property ownership at that level is not something that the average person could imagine. In America, because it was everybody who couldn't hack it one way or another, for one reason or another, in Europe, coming to, the, to coming across the water to make their fortune, to make a heaven on earth, whatever they were thought they were doing, were able to dispossess the native uh, occupants of the land and then subdue it without having to fight uh, against the traditional landowners. Uh, that meant that our so our American ideas of, of liberty are individualized in a way that is genuinely, I, I mean, I th- it's obviously wrong, but it's, it's allowed to, it's been allowed to persist just because we've always been able to replace the notion of autonomy through land ownership with something else. Once the, the promise gives away, like, we were going to be the place where nobody had to work for anybody else or not for very long because everybody could get land. And then once that proved itself to not be true, we had uh, a place where anybody could make their own business. And now like small business is replaced yeoman farming as the ideal American subject. Cause it's somebody who's, who is able to, uh, be free, able to able to exercise independent political judgment because the, the the big horror in American history is the idea that if you're you're gonna get something for nothing, you're gonna vote yourself from the public purse, which of course is nonsensical because everybody is here. Uh, everybody is part of a political body. Uh, and there's a general welfare. That's why the United States depended upon a subject race, as I talked about on Wednesday, uh, to make the whole thing make sense at all, which is why the Civil War really was the chance to re-inscribe America's conceptions of liberty, which we didn't get. I'm not going to watch the black and white justice league. That is a fucking, that is a, that is a bridge too far. No fucking way. I honestly, I remember the first trailer for it was in black and white and I just assumed it would all be black and white. And now they just decided to double dip. Very, very clever of them.
Somebody says these go around the block and go nowhere. That's kind of the point. It's going in circles because I'm in a guy in a room. I have nowhere to point anyone, including myself. Are the Avengers cops? Obviously. That's the thing about Marvel, and that's what that makes it such a contrast with DC, is that they do a very explicit job in the Marvel movies of saying that these people are essentially just uh, extensions of the state. Like, fucking the Falcon can't even get a goddamn bank loan, whereas the DC uh, heroes are uh, transcend state power. Is, uh, it, what's the IRL anti-life equation? I think you all know what I'm going to say it is. It's pretty obvious. It's capitalism. Dun, dun, dun. Somebody says about asks about the Meiji Restoration uh, in contrast to the uh, Civil War and Reconstruction. It's part of the same process. I mean, the 19th century is, I think, my my favorite century to study, just because it is it is when the uh, when capitalism started to achieve uh, escape velocity from settled human social orders, and that was everywhere and always an incredibly violent process because settled orders have vested interests. They have ways of life and being that are embedded and time tested and there will be resistance to their destruction. And I think it's funny that Ed Zwick made two movies, Glory and Last Samurai, uh, about two countries that had wars between capital and land, between traditional feudal orders or, or quasi-feudal, whatever you want to call slavery. I know people get mad when you call it feudal, but whatever you want to call it, uh, it was it was certainly not. Uh, it was certainly a, a uh, ancient. It was not a modern form of, of social relationship, certainly. And neither, of course, was uh, a feudal samurai order. And he makes two movies about those two wars. And the good guys in the first one are the bad guys in the second. Because at the end, what he's really responding to is like the romantic, a romantic story. And the fact that he's an American and uh, makes him be able to respond to it sort of just as a, as a romantic exploit. But either way, it's the same process. It is, it is the uh, landed, in the, the invested landed powers being replaced by a, uh, a order of finance abstract value.
Sushi indeed comped. The shit's boring, who cares? Somebody's asking me about Wild Wild West. The, I just found that movie to be very insultingly terrible. It was, it was bad, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't know why anyone would argue. I mean, it's, I guess like, oh, it's about a, a black cowboy in the West and he's against a Confederate, so it's like it's got good politics, but I'm sorry, it's, it sucks. It's bad. People are asking about Salma Hayek's butt. I'm fairly certain that's not her butt in there. That's a stunt butt. There is an amazing scene where Kenneth Branagh, who plays uh, Dr. Loveless, as, instead of as a dwarf, which he was on the show, as a guy with his legs blown off, uh, and... Will Smith are just trading ableist and racist jokes to one another, which uh, I'd be interested in seeing the response now. It'd be funny if that got if that scene got canceled now because it's it's very problematic. Why are there so few good Civil War movies? It is amazing. I mean, it's like, it's one of, it's our foundational, one of our most important historical traumas. Uh, it's one that I know for a fact is very captivating to many, many people. Uh, and yet there's almost no good Civil War movies. It's very weird. I mean, yeah, I know that a lot of it is because of the lost cause and how that, that just from a narrative perspective, let alone forgetting about ideology, people uh, want to, you know, graft some sort of nobility to that cause. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, we got Westerns instead. It's like, forget about the civil war. It's too messy. Let's just talk about what they did directly after that. I mean, one of the big problems, I think, is that just from a standpoint of, uh, I mean, maybe who knows now, maybe it's too late to ever have a good one, but they always made, they always made, were able to save money by having reenactors do the battle scenes and Civil War reenactors are all like fat old guys. So the, the battle scenes are terrible. Somebody says we need a 30 years war movie. That would be pretty intense. I, I would like to see that. There's, there have only been a couple 30 years war movies to my knowledge. There's one with Michael Caine where he plays like a Swedish cavalry officer who shows up to a town to raid it. I never saw that one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you want to talk about something that could be deeply metal. Something about the 30 years war would be pretty intense. 
I've always thought another interesting one would be um, would be Bacon's Rebellion, specifically because uh, when the the governor called out troops to put down Bacon's Rebellion in the uh, Virginia Colony in 1675. Uh, I want to see if I can find the quote here. I might not be able to find it. But they apparently dosed the, uh, the, the militia that they sent to put down the rebellion with, uh, with gymsum weed, which is a uh, poisonous hallucinogenic drug. Yeah, I got this quote here. Uh, so yeah, so they made Jim some weed soup while they were going to put down this this uh, re this rebellion against uh, the governor uh, and the colonial authorities. And the, there was a quote from someone who put it. Uh, it was a very pleasant comedy, for they turned natural fools upon it for several days. One would blow up a feather in the air, another would dart straws at it with much fury, and another, stark naked, was sitting up in a corner like a monkey, grinning and making mouths at them. So I just love this idea of you've got this, like, uh, rebellion against colonial authority, these guys trying to, you know, throw off the shackles, and the way they get people to go, and... Uh, and kill them all is to just get them fucking ripped. Yeah, MK Ultra, exactly. Yeah, a field in England is uh is is in the same vibe, but I think that uh I think that Bacon's Rebellion would be even more sort of edged. Thoughts on the Amazon Union Drive? I mean, I'm rooting for it. Obviously, I don't have I, I I don't have anything I can do. I don't know anyway to help it, but I'm certainly rooting for it. It's certainly it'll be interesting to see if it uh, does lead to more attempts to unionize Amazon workers because that actually is you know in a post-industrial economy an actual strategic node of production or at least distribution that could be leveraged. So, which is why you're going to see a very uh, concerted resistance to it. And that's the real question. It's like, we kind of know where there are the points to, to hypothetically organize and, and create leverage, but they know them too. And they're going to try to all, everything they can to prevent it.
somebody says, what's the best uh, house in Game of Thrones? Saying Martell is easy because it's like, hey, they're like kind of POC and they're they're cool with gender equality and they like drinking spicy red wine and being poly. So that's a little too easy. It's certainly, uh, it's not the fucking uh, Greyjoys. The fucking Iron Islanders, just the worst fucking assholes. Oh, just Jesus, shut the fuck up. So annoying. I do like Owl House Manderley because it's just a bunch of fat dudes. Just a bunch of fat dudes just piling in and being like, soup's on, motherfuckers. We're, we got kicked out of the Riverlands, and now we're going up to just park our asses uh, by this river and just eat. Yeah, you by the way, uh this is this is actually uh this is this reminds me. So obviously George R. R. Martin is never finishing these books. I mean, he's had a year off from anything else that he has to do, and yet he has nothing, which means that he isn't gonna finish anything. And it's not because he's lazy, it's not even I think because he's uh like too anxious or that he's too undermined by the fact that the show ended. Although honestly, the fact that the show has its ending, even if it's good or bad, I know as someone who read the books, as soon as the show came out, the last episode, it really did kind of make you go, eh, I don't really care anymore. I mean, I would like to see more books, but I've lost that desire that I used to have. But I think the thing that really did him in is that he is trying, like what he has created with that world of his he got so ambitious about it that he's no longer trying to like wrap up a story. He is trying to like describe an a epochal like transition of a social order. And that's just too big of an ask. That's just too many plates to keep spinning. Like, especially for somebody as fixated on like interconnectivity as he is. Like the way that the, the Benioff and Weiss were able to end the show was by just dropping everything uh, drop, like ha forgetting half the shit and just focusing. And he can't do it. I don't think he can do it. I mean, he's trying to like end a civilization or like lead to a, or, or describe the transition of one civilization into another one. And when you're doing that, I don't know the how I, that's too big of an ask. Like, look at what, uh, like, um, uh, the person he's most he's often compared to is you know the guy who invented what he's doing. Uh, uh, Tolkien he didn't do that. Tolkien just had the fucking elves leave. He just said yeah the elves is over the elves are gone uh, and so now the humans are going to do something and good luck to them. Like, he would have to actually have an entire social order be uh, uh, subsumed in some way. And how the hell do you even figure out how to do that? It's it's way too big. He, he bit off more than any one man in a Greek fisherman's hat could chew.
What about a death of Stalin style comedy based on the assassination of Arch- assassination of Archduke Ferdinand? I know somebody who wrote that script and it's really good. So it's out there. Probably never get made, but uh, it's out there. Somebody wants me to know about Eugene Merman. That's such a random... Where are people getting the idea of their questions? It's really baffling. What is my skincare routine? Well, thank you for asking, but I did not have one. The writing, <laughs> it's going. I mean, I don't know. I, I have a very hard time. Uh, I, I have a hard time writing without editing while I do it. I have a lot of transcripts and stuff that I'm trying to shape into something, but I'll admit it's, it's, it's been a struggle. I hope, I hope to have a, I have an idea for something that might help kind of break the logjam in the near future. I'll keep you updated. I'm just, the thing is I'm not really a writer. I never have been, you know, and now I'm trying to be, and it's a, uh, it's tough to learn the right habits when you haven't really been doing it that long, that much. How would I solve the Suez boat crisis? Uh, just get a bunch of helicopters and lift the boat. Seems easy. I do like that they're going back around the Cape of Good Horn, or the Cape of Cape of Good Horn, Cape of the Cape of Good Head. Uh, no, the Cape of Good Hope. I like that we're like it's Vasco da Gama time all over again.
I don't think that uh I don't think that they will be leaving Afghanistan. I don't think that there's the, I think at this point there is no incentive there's no overriding incentive to get America out of anywhere it is in right now. The it, the fact that they're failing, the fact that they don't they're not doing what they want to do or they're claiming to do doesn't matter. At this point, I think I think China more than anything is guaranteeing that we will not leave Afghanistan. Like if we're really deciding that China is the new enemy and we're going to do Cold War II with China, now that the war on terror is no longer a real useful uh, uh, predicate for our military economy, uh, Afghanistan is still crucial to that too. And there's lithium there too? Oh man, forget about it. Yeah, no, they're not going anywhere. And honestly, yeah, the heroin is a big part of it. I mean, there is there is zero way that we are not getting a huge amount of fucking uh, uh, money in put into the system one way or another by by the opium trade out of Afghanistan. I mean, the the, the Taliban were were eliminating opium before the U.S. invasion, and now it's where ninety percent of the world's opium comes from. In a similar way, there was very little opium produced into heroin anyway in the Golden Triangle before the Vietnam War started. And then all of a sudden, boom, became a world center of heroin production. The same time that the U.S. Uh, network of, of transports is moving shit all throughout all the mar- mountain regions of, uh, of Southeast Asia, just coincidentally. I wouldn't be, I mean... I, I don't know too much. I, I don't. I don't really want to get into the whole thing about the Uyghurs and everything because it does seem like it's a classic busy box for Americans who have nothing else to do to try to convince themselves they're waging a propaganda war that no one's paying attention to and that doesn't matter. But I would not be surprised if you saw some uh, some sort of insurgency being seeded uh, there by the United States. What ends U.S. global hegemony? The dollar. But again, you know, it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing. Like, the dollar is dominant because we are the dominant power in the world. and it, Its value is dependent on our military uh, and it, our state robustness, which is tied to the military. So... Uh, I do wonder how much of a paper tiger the American military is because it does seem like it just exists to, you know, make money for people and uh, build boats to crash into each other and planes that can't fly. And that if there had to be a real contest that there would not be 
anything there to really uh, to to work. But of course, that's why we're going to try to avoid one, which is why the whole thing with China is so interesting. Because, uh, you know, we can't fight a war with China. It's absurd. It can't, it can't exist. But at the same time, brinksmanship with China is also necessary. Honestly, yeah, fake war with China would make the most sense. Get all the real leaders in a room, not Joe Biden, of course, but the real leaders in a room and say, okay, let's, let's coordinate this thing. Let's, let's figure out who's going to get bombed, where, what losses we can accept, uh, and then coordinate and, and orchestrate a, a, a build-up conflict and then a drawdown that like, manages the tension. Uh, and it wouldn't be the first time. That, I mean, the, the Gulf War was basically staged uh, just without uh, poor Saddam Hussein really knowing what was happening. That is, I 100% believe that the Gulf War, uh, as Baudry Lard said, did not, exist, did not take place uh, in the sense that it was a war that the United States uh, provoked, allowed to happen, in fact, set up to happen in order to uh, establish a new uh, military order in, in the aftermath of the, of the collapse of the Soviet Union, a, a unipolar American-led world community that would be able to act anywhere in the world and that would justify the maintenance of America's military-based economy and not have to worry about that peace dividend that, uh, that people in power were terrified of having to deal with after the fall of the Soviet Union. Because if the United States had really not wanted Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait, there were plenty of times that they could have told him not to do it. Instead, they explicitly told him to go ahead. We didn't care. so that he would do it and then once it happened we could go oh shit yeah no never mind we're you're actually hitler jr and we're gonna blow your ass up and that's the crowning achievement of george hw bush's career this guy who behind the scenes for 50 years was knitting together the forces of the deep state and uh wall street eastern capital and Sunbelt oil and defense money in and then into a viable machinery for power through the uh, instrument of the Republican Party uh, and then was able to see through the end of the Cold War the establishment of a new unipolar world through the fucking literal staging of a fucking war and then he goes down in history as a fucking loser because the GDP dropped for three months in early 1992. It's, it's one of the great arcs of any American political figure.
I, we really should do an episode about Bullworth. That movie is is maybe the most 90s. If you want to understand 90s politics, it might be the single best movie for forgetting that moment, to forgetting the sort of pre-9-11 malaise, the the sort of the 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 futile dream of some sort of truth teller cutting through with rap. I do listen to Lex G's podcast. If anyone wants a uh, movie podcast, I highly recommend Lex G. Not only because he uh, he has he's a good rock on tour who, who does a great talk about uh, like his personal relationship to movies, but also, and I think this is very important, he and also Will, I will say this, is who's also you know uh, trying to establish a new mode of criticism is trying to transcend the current critical moment, which is that basically the only film criticism that exists anymore is entirely content-based. The only reason to talk about a movie is to talk about its, uh, like the, the themes within it, its politics. That's why you talk about a movie, like, what the characters relate to, like who they, who's my friend, who's my enemy, you know, what's problematic, what's not. And I feel like that has really reached a point where it, there's, it's total diminishing returns. What I think is going to come back, and I think Lex uh, and Will are hopefully going to be forefront on, is the return to an aesthetic critique of film, where you talk about the way that it looks, the way that it's, is set up the way that the scenes are, the way it's edited. Those, those things, the actual form of the film. Uh, and like, yeah, vibe. Uh, and Lex G had an episode where he talks about sheen, which is a thing that you never hear anybody talking about when they talk about movies, which is it's it, the color grading. It's look. How you, movie comes out, no one's going to tell you what the sheen is. They're only going to tell you about like whether it's a good or bad movie in the culture war. Basically, I, I think that there's going to be a return of, of criticism that deals with the actual formal elements of film, which I think is good. So yeah, the Lex G podcast. It's on. Uh, it's on Spotify. Of course, it is an acquired taste because he is uh, a special figure and he's a uh, idiosyncratic voice to say the least uh but it's if you if you want to hear someone talking about movies it's it's not like anything else you're going to encounter that's for sure i just watched close i just rewatched close encounters of the third kind last night that's so funny that someone asked It's, uh, I enjoyed it. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Uh, it's good. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know how I really felt about it though. I mean, now the thing is like with Spielberg, now that I kind of imagine him as this, like 
demonic avatar of the New World Order. It's hard to really watch anything of his through a non-horrified lens. Uh, Spielberg is going to make a movie about his childhood. Hasn't that been like all of his movies? But I did, I, I did, I, I did, re, I will say that, yeah, in, in Close Encounters, I did relate poignantly to that restlessness of the character, that, that inability to, to like accept what's around you and that, that, uh, that yearning for transcendence. And then it, the fact that he just gets it at the end, like, oh, here are the aliens. They want to take you to space. It's a little, uh, it's it's kind of jaw dropping in its narcissism, really. But it's very well shot. The alien, the the UFO shit looks good. I haven't watched the Suicide Suicide Squad trailer yet. I've heard that it's nothing but soy dialogue, which I'm very excited about. Thank goodness. I got to say, I'd rather see the, the Ayers cut. Because Ayers was such a weird choice for that. Like, he's a guy who just makes grim cop movies. And then they have him doing this thing with all these like, and then they had to, and apparently he made it like a grim cop version of Suicide Squad that took the suicide part very seriously. And then after all those Snyder movies were not performing as well as the Marvel ones, they just panicked and cut the whole thing up because there was a fucking trailer that had uh, like a Bohemian Rhapsody in it that everybody liked. So I would like to see just the full grim version, the grim, the full grim air cut of that, just as a contrast. Release the Dan Schneider cut. <laughs> the Dan Schneider cut could only be screened uh, at, like in front of a sealed grand jury, I think. <laughs> Yeah, premiering on Little St. James, exactly. I think that Spielberg is just demonic because of his complacency. Like his like you contrast him with a guy like uh like Cameron, you know? His he is he is at the top. He is a, he's supposed to be an artist, you know? 
and he has he's been he's been to the top of power. He's he's hung out with presidents. He, he knows what's there. And every one of his films is devoted to telling everyone, especially in like in the last ten years or so, that everything is basically uh, as it should be, like a, a Panglossian best of all possible worlds. And I don't know how you can have his ability, his connection to power, and his connection to honestly horrifying figures like his DreamWorks uh, partner, David Geffen, and put that out there without any kind of, uh, of awareness. It seems like he's, he's, his movies exist to, to, to lull you. And, uh, yeah, that's why I said that it, maybe his most biographical movie is actually Temple of Doom. Have I addressed the Biden stimulus bill yet? I People have been asking that. I really don't know what we're supposed to say about it. I mean, I guess the only thing I would like to say about it, maybe we'll talk about it on the show, is we're seeing people act like, oh, FDR is back, baby. We're, we're, neoliberalism is over. Uh, very, very puzzling. I, I, I do not understand this. I mean, I guess I understand it. People want to – they want to imagine – if they're in media, if they're in left media, they want to imagine that they're having an influence on things like, yep, we did this. We, we pushed him left or something. Uh, but it seems like it's, it's like we have gotten to a point where, where they've starved the, the grassroots of the economy so much that that stimulus was like just necessary to keep the fucking water wheels turning. Uh, and the idea that it is some sort of permanent new, new, a new consensus that is somehow durable and is going to be uh, able to resist the inevitable pressure to like uh, to reinforce uh, neoliberalism. I it seems it seems unsupported. I mean, just writing people checks is the literal least you could do. And more importantly, it doesn't actually change power relationships in any significant way. And that's what you actually have to look at. If they pass the PRO Act, that'd be one thing. If they pass the PRO Act, I might drop the monocle out of my eye a little bit. But I ain't holding my breath. But the good news is none of it has anything to do with me. So, or you, or anybody. We can't really do anything about it. I mean, yeah, like the Cobra premium thing is a perfect example. Oh, my God, they're paying everybody's Cobra premiums. That's just an insanely giant just, uh, check to the fucking insurance industry. That's just money to insurance company. That, so that's not – you're not changing anything. You're just 
You're literally buying off the, the top constituencies. Okay, I'm uh, going to log off here. We'll be back next week to talk about the last two chapters in Wednesday of Reconstruction. And then hopefully we'll be back on Friday to do another Hangout stream. Maybe have uh, Chris. We'll see. Bye-bye, folks.